So today we are beginning our Easter series. Uh, that series is called Who is This Man? And we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. So if you want to go ahead and go there. I want to give you a little bit of background on how the Lord led me to this series. Back in November, uh, my wife Jennifer and I, along with Pastor John and Catherine, went down to Corpus Christi for the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention, uh, which is an affiliation of our church. And so we went down, down there for that conference. And that was my first time to the convention. And let me just say, I walked away encouraged and thrilled at the state of our convention. Uh, there was our president of the convention. His name is Todd. I believe you would say Connitz, something like that. He's a pastor out of Longview. On the first night, he preached a sermon that was so moving about the power of prayer in our churches and the neglect that we have given that in many of our churches. And so I was really stirred by that. And so he actually led us through probably about a 45-minute, maybe almost an hour time of instructed prayer, just pastors from across our state. And then the next day at a luncheon, there was a, a guy who was speaking, and I, I couldn't find his first name, but last name was Eliff. And he, his whole purpose of speaking that morning, now remember this is in November, is that he has studied American revivals and that he felt like, one, that if the church will return to pray, that we are poised, we are due for the next generation's revival and an awakening. And I just remembered being so stirred by this. And then, of course, as you know, over the last few weeks, what started at Asbury in Wilmore, Kentucky, and then has begun to jump from various campuses. And to be honest, here's where I stand today is to say this, Harmony Hill, can we just plead to our Heavenly Father, why not here? Why not here, God? That we would see people, more people going from death to life, like the stories we just heard. That we would see those who have been neither hot nor cold, that have been lukewarm, move to an awakening, a reawakening of the fire that is due to the one who has saved us. Why not here? And so as we walk from now through Easter, and actually the week after Easter, we're going to be looking at who is this man? Who is Jesus? And so with that, I'm going to read John chapter 1, 19 through 34. It is a fairly extensive passage, and so if you don't have a copy, there's Bibles in the, in the chairs in front of you, but I think it's important that we read the whole thing this morning. This is where it starts, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews had sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Well, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as the prophet Isaiah said. 
Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and so they asked him, Then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now these things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Now John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is such an amazing passage. The first truth I want you to see in your life point outline is this. And this sort of relates to the Asbury thing and where, where we're headed with this. People are curious about what God is doing and they have questions. People are curious about what God is up to in our country, maybe in a fresh way that we haven't seen in a while, and they have questions. It's quite possible that you are here this morning because you are wondering what God is up to and you have questions. And so what I want to do is I want to unpack these verses as much as we can in the time that we have to answer what is our role in helping to clear away some of the confusion. And so that's the first point here. In our role, we clear up confusion about what the true source of hope is or who has the true source of hope. So in these verses that I just read, you got to understand, it's kind of like today. There was a movement. John the Baptist was creating a stir outside of the city, baptizing people. And word, even without the help of social media, word was getting out that God was up to something. And so the Pharisees send some Levites and priests to go ask John, what is going on? Now you notice they ask him three questions about who he might be. What you got to understand is that for the Jewish audience, they were looking for one of three people to help signal the end of days based on Scripture. So number one, they come to him and they say, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one? Now notice this. I find this so fascinating. John the Baptist says, I am not the Christ. Now later in this gospel, when Jesus is sort of asked about who he is, he will answer I am. See, in the Old Testament, when God uh, revealed to Moses his name, Yahweh, I am who I am. And so John the Baptist is quick to say, you're asking about the Messiah? I am not the Christ. 
The second person that the Jewish leaders would be looking for for a sign of God's movement was Elijah. See, in the prophet Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, it says that God would send the prophet Elijah just before that great and terrible day of the Lord. And so they're asking, are you Elijah? Are you a symbol that things are coming? And he says, I am not. Then the third person they ask, they say, are you the prophet? Now what they're referring to there is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Moses is telling them, there will come a prophet after me who the Lord will use to speak to you. And so they began to look for a prophet like Moses. So they are asking, are you the prophet, prophet Moses spoke about? And he just says, no. So they are very confused. Well, what's happening here if you're not one of those three people? So they say, well, who are you? And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And he says, I am a voice crying from the wilderness, make way or make straight a path. For the Lord. What he means there is in Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet is speaking a word of hope because the people of Israel, because of their sin, had been exiled out of the promised land. And when Isaiah and Isaiah 40 comes in, he is basically saying this If you will repent of what caused you to be exiled, you can make a way through the wilderness. And in chapter 40, he says, Doesn't matter if a mountain's there, I will make it low. Essentially, he's saying, despite the topography, you are to make a clear way of repentance back to the Lord. And what was John the Baptist's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, I am a voice crying out. I'm just pointing to someone else. And they, they're like, okay, well, let's set that aside, that whole voice crying in the wilderness thing. Because they said, look, our bosses need us to get some answers. If you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, why are you baptizing people? What, what authority do you have to, be, to baptize people? And John says this, um, I was told to baptize with water. And I'm really just baptizing with water until the one who comes that will baptize with the Holy Spirit. My whole job here is to point you to the one that you should follow. So they don't know what to do with this. And he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. The one that will come, I'm, I can't even unstrap his sandals. Now, when a rabbi had students or disciples, they sort of used them as free labor. And they would have to do everything for the rabbi. But the one thing they wouldn't make a disciple do is undo the straps of their sandals because it was such a debasing thing. In fact, Jews would not allow other Jews to take off their sandals. They would have a Gentile do it. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do the most debasing thing for the one who is coming. He outranks me. He's before me. I simply am here to point to him. Look, as we are in a day where people are confused and maybe wondering what is God up to, our role is to clear away that confusion about the true source of hope. Now, the next point in your outline is this. I want to be very clear. We are not 
the true source of hope. You and I are not their hope. It is so easy for us to think, if I could just do this, or if they would just do that, and if they would come with me, and if I did this, if I bring... Look, those are all worthy things, but we are not the source of hope. Like John, our role is simply to clear that confusion away from any human resource and point them to Jesus. If I can take it a step further, though, as an organization, Harmony Hill Baptist Church is not the source of their hope. See, we often think if I could just get my loved one or my friend or my neighbor to church and I can get them to act like church people and talk like church people, then they'll find hope. That is simple religion. That is not the true source of hope. The true source of hope is a person, and it is Jesus Christ. Because if we're honest, look, every one of us, including myself, I am a broken sinner, and I will let you down. But the true source of hope never will let them down. We as an organization, as Harmony Hill, as a church, as an ecclesia, as I talked about last week in Disciple Now, Look, we're going to make some decisions. People get hurt in churches. It's not intentional. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes you might disagree. And a church will hurt people. But the true source of hope will never let them down. So we got to be careful who we are pointing people to. See, it would have been easy. John the Baptist has got a thriving ministry out here at, by the Jordan. And people are coming to him. Are you the Christ? How easy would it have been? <laughs> yeah. You bring them to me. He says, no, I am not the Christ. Are you Elijah? Now, this is where it gets a little tricky, right? Because he says no, and then later Jesus says about John the Baptist, he is Elijah. Which I just think is more about John the Baptist's humility to go, if somebody else, if the Savior wants to dub that that's been my role, that is what it is. I'm just simply here pointing people to him. So, we are not the source, only Jesus is, but the last truth there under number one, we are unworthy yet authorized messengers. We are unworthy yet authorized messengers. John knew, I am unworthy to unstrap his sandal. And for many of us in the room, we dwell on the unworthy part, and we think God can't use me because of this in my past or this, I don't have that skill set, I am unworthy. And while we are unworthy, don't forget, yet we are authorized messengers. John says, I'm unworthy, but he who sent me gave me a job to do, and I'm going to do that job. I want you to hear me. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have repented of sin and you are trusting Jesus for salvation, if you've gone death to life, you are authorized to take his message to those who need hope. It's not just pastors. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, said, look, we are a priesthood of believers. Meaning you could say that we have 400 ministers in this room right now because you are authorized. Don't focus so much on the unworthy 
other than to keep your pride in check, but focus on, but yet he has thought enough to authorize me to share the good news. And how do we do that? Just like John, like a voice in the wilderness, making a clear path. Um, I should have asked Pastor Ross how to pronounce this as uh, he had spent time in China, but there is a, a dangerous road called the Goling Tunnel Road, G-U-O-L-I-N-G. And what happened is in the 1970s, there was a village surrounded completely by mountains. I mean, impossible to get into it um, without much difficulty. And 13 of those villagers said, we will cut a road. We will make a way through and around the mountain so that we can be connected to the outside world. 13 villagers, five years digging out this tunnel with no, like, bulldozers. It was hammers and chisels. A couple of them died in the process. And what did they have as the result? One of the most dangerous roads in the world that is three-quarters of a mile long, 16 feet high, and 13 feet wide. But why did they do it? Because they felt it was important to make a way for their people. We are unworthy yet authorized messengers, that we are to make a way, whatever the cost, to help people know access to the one true source of hope. So that's number one. Number two, not only do we clear up confusion, but number two, we bear witness to Jesus. We bear witness. What does that mean? To bear witness is essentially like to say in court, I testify about this person or I inform you about this person. I am giving credibility to who this is. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, Near the end of last season uh, in Major League Baseball, myself and a group of guys went down to a Houston Astros baseball game. And as we were walking into the stadium uh, on the main concourse out in the outfield, There was a great stir of commotion. And so uh, naturally you want to go see what's going on. And we, somebody in the group said, I bet it's somebody famous. And so we sort of get close and we see a man who is shirtless, who has, let's just say his muscles had muscles. And he's walking through there and I don't know who he is, but there's a lot of people taking selfies and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm like, "I, I don't know who that is. But two of the guys in our group knew exactly who it was, and they said, it's the liver king, which meant nothing to me still. Uh, but I remember one of the boys went up, and my, this is sort of an aside, but my favorite part, is he went to, he was so excited to take a picture of the liver king up close that he had the phone flipped around and took a picture of himself looking at the liver king. Uh, and he came back still just so happy, and he's like, I can't believe we saw the, li- the liver king. Man, he smells bad. And so for the next couple of innings after we get to our seat, they began to bear witness to me and the others who had no idea who the liver king was. They began to tell us he's the guy that got famous on, the, on Instagram uh, for ha- living an ancestral life, meaning all he does is work out and eat raw meat. So we watched videos about the liver king. We saw some of his, you know, pictures on Instagram, and they informed me. They bore witness to who he is and why I should think he is important. 
I chose not to think he was that important. And surprise, surprise, a couple of months ago, he found out he doesn't always eat raw meat only and happens to be juicing. So whatever, right? But here's the deal. Like, that's what it means, though, to bear witness is to help someone understand to go, hey, this is who this is. This is why he is important. And that is what John does. After that sort of in interrogation crew came, it says the next day. So they leave. And the next day, John is out doing ministry again. And imagine this. He's, in, he's baptizing people, preaching about repentance. And Jesus walks in and he says, time out. Service is paused. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an introduction that is as Jesus walks. Can you imagine being you know, two or three people in line waiting to be baptized by John? You've repented, you're, you're on board, and he says, hold up, you're going to have to wait because there's the Lamb of God. He bears witness to him. As we walk through this process over the next six, seven weeks of answering the question, who is this man? Jesus. And we'll barely scratch the surface of the various facets of who Jesus is. But for the next six to seven weeks, we're going to be looking at who is this man. And so John gives us four qualities, four titles that we're going to look at this morning. Number one, he says he's the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God. Now, what you need to know is not John the Baptist, but John the disciple who is writing this entire narrative is using the Passover feast and event as a theme throughout his gospel. Okay, And so when John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God, that is right in John the disciple's wheelhouse as he's writing this out because if you remember the Passover... Back in Exodus, the last plague of, on Pharaoh's household, the children of Israel were told, find a pure, spotless lamb. And then you are to sacrifice it. And then to take the blood of that lamb and put it over your doorway. And then the death will pass over and you will not be touched within that household. And they began celebrating the Passover meal and the Passover festival ever since the Exodus. And so when John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God, he is saying, this is our pure, spotless Lamb who will be sacrificed, his pure blood spilt and put across the top of the doorway of our heart for those who trust him, that sin, death, and hell will not touch his kids. That's amazing. Behold the Lamb of God. Who is this man? Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes our sin away. So not only is he the Lamb of God, though, he is the eternal one. You'll notice John in this as he's describing, as he's doing this introduction to Jesus. He says, this is the one I told you about that I was unworthy to unstrap his sandal, the one I told you outranked me, and the one who came before me. Now that's a curious statement that John the Baptist would say that Jesus came before him. Because if you look in, say, the Gospel of Luke, you will, un you will read that John the Baptist is Jesus' older cousin. 
So presumably he was born first. So what does John the Baptist mean when he says, he outranks me, but he came before me? What he means is this. John, the disciple again, in writing this gospel, begins in chapter 1, starts his whole gospel with this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then a little parenthesis, and John the Baptist witnessed or bore witness or testified to this truth. What John the Baptist knew was Jesus, though born physically after him, is eternal. See, he is the creator. When God spoke creation in Genesis, the power of creation through the spoken word was Christ. All things were created for him and by him, and all things are held together through him. He says, he is before me, and he will be long after me, is what he could have said. See, Jesus is eternal. See, his three years on earth is not just a flash in the pan. He had a plan from long ago, and he's executing that plan. He is God. This is huge. Who is this man? He's the Lamb of God, but he is eternal. He was before. He was with God. He was God. He's a creator. He put on flesh. This is who he is. So not only is he the Lamb of God and not only is he the eternal one, but number three, John affirms that the Holy Spirit endorsed him as the Messiah. So presumably John has already baptized Jesus before uh, this passage and had seen the dove come down and rest on him of the Holy Spirit and the voice from heaven which said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So when Jesus walks in on this day, he says, behold the Lamb of God, he outrakes me, he's before me, and this is what you should know. I've been baptizing with water, but he who sent me, the Father, told me that I would see the Christ, the Messiah, the one when his Holy Spirit descended and rested on him. And so John says, he's the one. I saw the Holy Spirit affirm that he is the one. Holy Spirit affirmed. Now, there is a heresy that you may hear from time to time where someone might say that at the dropping or the the Holy Spirit resting on Jesus at his baptism is when he became God. That is heresy. That is a lie. That negates the first point that John made just above it, which is that he is eternal. He is fully God, fully man, not just at the baptism, but from conception. Does that make sense? That's called adoptionism, and it is false because it will try to, that that teaching will try to lead you into thinking that when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you too can have a God-like quality We are other than. He is other than us in that sense. The Holy Spirit was simply coming on him not to adopt him and make him the chosen one, but to validate and affirm so that no one would miss it. That John and Jesus together, it would make sense. This is the one. So that John can clearly later in the gospel say, I must decrease so that he will increase. 
The Holy Spirit affirmed it. So who is this man? He's the Lamb of God. He's the eternal one. He was affirmed by the Holy Spirit. Just as a little aside for free, the word Trinity is itself is not in the Bible. That If you didn't know that. But this passage, among many others, is why we have a category called the Trinity. Because the Father is the one who sent the Spirit onto the Son. All three persons of the one triune God represented in this passage. That's for free. You can take that with you, right? That is our God. But the fourth thing, not only the Lamb of God, the eternal one, affirmed by the Holy Spirit, but he is the chosen one. Now, in verse 34, most, if not all of the translations, and mine included, that last says, he is the Son of God, which is true. That's not an an untrue statement. But the, the Greek there is different from other places in the New Testament where we get Son of God. And adequate translation as well could be the chosen one. He was the one chosen by God for this ministry. Now, that's true whether it says son of God or chosen. You understand, it's a similar thing, but both concepts are there. And so with that, what we have is this. It is, who is this man? He is the answer to our sin problem from long ago. See, way back in the garden, When Adam and Eve sinned and God was giving punishment or the curse, right there in the middle of the curse you get the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. If you recall, um, for for woman she would give birth and there would be pain in childbearing and all the women said amen. But then through her seed, through her descendants, there would be one who would come And the enemy would strike his heel, but he would crush their head. That's the first gospel. He, Jesus, is the chosen one of Eve to crush the enemy. He's the chosen one. And by him, the scripture tells us, there is no other name under heaven by which men and women can be saved. It's just the way it is. He alone was chosen so that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So if those things are true, that our role is to help clear up confusion, make straight a pathway to the Lord, and then two, that we would bear witness to others that he is the Lamb of God, he is the eternal one, he is affirmed by the Holy Spirit, and he is the chosen one. Then the last thing, the last few moments I want to spend this morning is this. If those things are true, then what is Harmony Hill's strategy for this Easter season? I want to give you four things that we are operating here on the hill. And I'm, this is still, I'm going to have to grow into this, sort of saying this, but as your pastor. If you're a member of Harmony Hill... I'm asking you that these four things we're about to go through during this Easter season that you would say yes to. And if you're a visitor here today, there are no restrictions to you. You are welcome to any part of this. Um, But I don't have authority over you if you're not a member. But if you're a member, I'm asking you to say yes to these four things. Because if God is moving and people have questions, this is our strategy. Number one, we're going to worship. We're going to worship the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
every week, specifically as I'm talking about for the next six, seven weeks up to Easter, we are going to be looking at facets of who is this man. Jesus is going to be exalted and extolled and praised and worshipped through song, through prayer, through preaching, through testimony, whatever it is, we are going to worship him. And I'm asking you to say yes to coming and worshiping him this Easter season. The second thing that I'm going to ask you to do is we are going to pray intentionally. We're going to pray intentionally. In your bulletin, you may have noticed this or maybe not, but we have uh, the Easter prayer points. And we have five dates set aside between now and Easter for prayer. And I'm asking you, again, if you're a member, I'm asking that you come to at least one. You can come to all of them. But I'm just saying, will you make time to come to at least one and pray? God says we don't have because we don't ask. And again, I tell you from the top of the sermon... God, why not here? So as a church, we want to say, God, why not here? We want to see people go from death to life. We want to see restored relationships. We want to see an awakening in people's lives of truth to your spirit's call. And these services, they're going to be like 30 to 40 minutes long. There's not going to be songs. There's not going to be any preaching. It's going to be just prayer. Now here's a couple of things that I just want to help clear the air. If you don't want to pray out loud, nobody's going to make you come and pray out loud at one of these. If you don't know how to pray, if you're thinking, 30, 40 minutes, how am I going to do that? Just like any other muscle, you've got to exercise it and flex it. We'll have prayer points. This is what we want you to There will be people guiding you through the times of prayer. It's really designed that any believer, no matter their level of spiritual, spiritual maturity, can come and pray. Here's what I believe. I believe this with all my heart. Easter Sunday morning is going to be a celebration regardless, but the fruit that we see from Easter in this series is totally connected to how well we will come and pray. That we will come and pray. So there's some prayer points that you can pray at home. We've chosen different days of the week, different times. I'm asking you to select one and let's pray intentionally. Number three. I'm asking you to memorize Scripture. Now, here's the good news. I'm only asking you to memorize two verses over the next seven weeks. So even if you're like, man, Scripture memory is hard, I believe every person in this room, given enough focus, can memorize two verses. And they're going to be from Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. When I was a young boy, I did a thing called Bible drill. And when I got older in Bible drill, uh, you would memorize scripture. But one of the things they would do is they would have a question and then a scripture to memorize to answer that question. So if our question this series is who is this man, the scripture I want you to memorize, Matthew 16, 15 and 16 is this. Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's it. That's what I'd like for you to memorize. So that at any point, if someone asks you, who is this man, you are ready to answer the question. And then fourthly, we're asking that you would invite and proclaim. Invite 
and proclaim. Not just on Easter, but at any time, to a prayer service, to a Sunday morning, to your life group, inviting people who are curious about what God is up to. But again, this church is not the source of hope. We just worship he who is the source of hope. And so every one of you are yet unworthy, yet authorized. You can proclaim it. Do you know that the best person to share the gospel to your friend is actually not me? It's you. Because you know them. I promise and covenant with you that over these weeks specifically, that every time you bring one of your friends, as we head up to Easter, a family member, co-worker, we are going to talk about who Christ is and why that is important. So that's it. That's, that's what I'm asking you for this season to worship, to pray intentionally, to memorize scripture, invite, proclaim. All the while saying, God, why not here? This service, I love this service. Y'all are not quite as vocal as the first service. So I'm just going to ask a question. Just sort of litmus test here. Anybody with me on this? Okay. Okay. All right. Why not here, God? I'm going to pray. We're going to have an announcement video, and then we'll be dismissed. If God has been stirring in your heart and you need to take a next step to know Christ personally or ask questions about next steps in your journey, please take the time to walk across the hall and talk to one of our pastors or trained volunteers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus, your chosen answer to our sin, our shame, our guilt, the, the cavernous barrier that we created with our sin, the relationship with you. Thank you for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, I pray over this church, God, may we extol the name of Jesus as we ask you, why not here? Would you take people from death to life here? Would you awaken souls to a greater sense of spiritual maturity and obedience here? Would you restore things here? Would you give us a heart for prayer and worship here? And with that, Father, it's in the power of Jesus' name we ask those things. Amen.